It's my privilege this morning to introduce Daniel to you. If you don't know Daniel, this is Daniel right here. Good-looking beard. Um, I think uh, what we've been doing this season is uh, having an opportunity for guys that we're going to be sending out to Venice um, to really get a chance to share with you. And so in February, we're going to be starting a new expression of the church because this isn't the church when we gather together. It's just an expression of how the church gathers and worships Jesus. The church is actually the people of God. And so we're going to start a new expression of that in the Venice area so that more people can hear about the good news of Jesus. And Daniel is going to be one of the, the leaders there. And, and what's been great, I think, since the day that Daniel walked in the door, um, he has been a constant servant. And as he's been here, we've got to see how he's loved his wife well and how he's loved the community well and how he's loved his co-workers well. And, and I'm excited to hear uh, what God has laid on his heart this morning to share with us. And so I want to just pray for Daniel and then... Um, He's going to jump in, and, and this is his very first time as well, so that's very exciting as well. So not to put any, like, things on it, but yeah. So, our Father, we thank you for Daniel. Thank you for your love for him. Father, thank you for calling him. Father, thank you that you have saved him and redeemed him and that you have changed his heart. Father, I pray that you would speak through him, that your spirit would rest upon him this morning and that you would share with us what you want us to see about Jesus. So, Father, we, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. As Tripp said, my name is Daniel. Um, yeah, this month we've, uh, those of us from Venice, have had a chance to teach on the Incarnation. So the first week of the month, Josh taught uh, from the prophet Isaiah, and we looked at how the power of God was manifested in the person of God fulfilling the promise of God. And then the next week, the eighth, Daniel Makeda taught out of John 1, where we get to see who Jesus is and what he's done and how we get to respond to that. And then this week, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, and you may be wondering, I think fairly, why the Sunday before Christmas we're looking at Colossians, not maybe the story of the birth of Jesus. Um, and my hope here is that you'll leave here today with a new appreciation for the classic Christmas story of you know, two parents who can't find a place to go, and a baby's born outside, and there's angels proclaiming why this is great and why there's great hope for the world uh, in that, that birth. Um, yeah, that moment in history, the birth of Jesus, the, the incarnation, uh, the moment in which the creator of all things decided it was good for him to dwell in human form is the source of greatest hope that the world has. Um, and I hope that we get to see that through Colossians today. So uh, similarly, obviously, the Christmas season is a time of joy and hope. Um, and so I'm wondering maybe what kind of things we're hoping for this year around Christmas time. If you're new with us, or this is your first time hearing something like this from the front, this is a time for you to respond. So I'm looking for real answers. Uh, what are you hoping for this Christmas season? My children to get along. <laughs> That's a good one. Good luck with that. <laughs> What was that? Joy despite the struggles. Joy despite the struggles. Time of family. Time of family. We'll fulfill it right here. 
That's good, yeah. Some people get it right now. What else? What are we hoping for this, this Christmas season? Rest. Rest. That's a good one. Anyone else? I personally uh, am hoping for uh, this process. I'm applying for a new position at my company, so I'm hoping that that works out and that the transition between roles goes smoothly, uh, and that's something that's taking up a lot of my thoughts. Um, but as we look at Colossians today, we're going to see how the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus were actions which God was pleased to undertake, and they offer a better hope for us than than these things that we're looking at right now. Um, so let's allow this text to speak to us this morning. Let's listen for the Spirit telling us about His pleasure in undertaking this wondrous plan of reconciliation and what great hope that gives us. Uh, so yeah, so we're going to be in Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Um, yeah, and I'm about to read it, but first, just a couple key things to look for. The first verses, 15 through 20, are this beautiful poem that Paul's written uh, about Jesus. They're going to give us really strong identity statements about him and who he is and why we can look to him for this hope. Uh, and then the last couple of verses are going to be about uh, the Colossians, but even more um, also about us. And um, yeah, so that's going to be uh, stuff for us to, to take home with us too. So let's read Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So like I said, this, this first part here, 15 through 20, this is a poem about Jesus. And the fact that Paul uses a poem in this letter to the Colossians is an indicator that he wants his readers to stop and think about what he's saying. Right? He's using a different kind of literature because he wants this to really hit home. Um, and I think another thing that's beautiful about him using a poem that we can think about today is that we still... We still do this. We still write poems about Jesus. We still write songs and hymns about this living God who's, uh, who's still alive, who's still acting, who's still working. These things are still true about him. And I think that's beautiful even 2,000 years later that this kind of thing is still going on and these same truths are still being expressed. So let's break the poem down a little bit so we can have some grappling hooks uh, to take with us. Um, I think it's split. It's a four sections, um, and I think each of those sections has a different theme. Those are going to be uh, the first section is creation, and then the second section will be the supremacy of Christ, and then the third is new creation, and the fourth is reconciliation. 
So let's look at the first theme, creation in verses 15 through 16, and I'll read those again really quickly. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Being the image of the invisible God uh, demonstrates Jesus' unique relationship to God, that he's uh, one being permanently settled in human form. Um, and also it expresses his unique relationship to creation, that he's God's agent in creation. I mean, we see that expression also um, of Jesus' relationship to God in John 1, 18, which says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we know humanity uh, from the creation story was designed to be God's self-expression uh, within this world um, so that he himself could live appropriately among his people as one of themselves um, and that he could rule over creation. Um, and we see Jesus is the expression of that is God being able to rule over creation as himself a creature. Um, and Paul's way of expressing the incarnation here uh, is to say poetically that the man, Jesus, fulfills the purposes which God had marked out both for himself and for humanity. Um, that he is the image of the invisible God, but he is also the firstborn of all creation. I mean, then in verse 16, Paul moves the thought of the poem from the past, where we see Christ as the agent of creation, into the present, where we see Christ as the one to whom the world owes allegiance, um, and then into the future, Christ who's sovereignty will become universal. And this is confirmed by the next section, the first of the two short middle sections of the poem. So we reach the second section and theme, the supremacy of Christ, which is verse 17, which says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Paul is speaking to Jesus' priority both in, in time and in rank here, um, when he says he's before all things, not just that, uh, that Jesus was with God in the beginning, as we saw in John 1 a couple weeks ago with Daniel, but um, that he also is uh, uh, he's first above all things as well. Um, and we see that all things were, were made through him in verse 16. And so we see everything here, uh, everything holds together in Christ and everything will continue to hold together. Through him the world is sustained and prevented from falling into chaos. Um, and we see no creature is autonomous, that all are God's servants and dependents, and that Christ is supreme above all. So that brings us to the third theme in verse, uh, the first half of verse 18, which is new creation. Um, and that says, he is the head of the body, the church. Uh, and Paul moves the thought here to, yeah, to new creation, that Christ is the head of the body, the church, which is the embodiment of his new creation here on earth, that... Um, in the second Corinthians, Paul fleshes out this idea that the church, that those who uh, are in Christ, as he describes it, are a new creation. And that's in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, uh, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the beautiful truth here that Paul is exposing for us uh, is that the same Lord through whom we're made is also the same Lord uh, through whom we're made new. We're made new creations um, and that we're redeemed into something better. Um, and we'll hit on that more in the, the later sections. 
uh, the passage here. So finally in the poem, the last theme, the fourth theme is reconciliation, which we see in the, the last half of verse 18 to the end of verse 20. And I'll read that again for us. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in the second half of verse 18, the beginning of this fourth section here, we see that Christ is the victor over the original enemies of humanity, sin and death, the very things that we brought into the world through our rebellion. Um, We see he's gone back to the beginning, to the very source of brokenness, and he's overcome it. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's beaten death. And this phrasing that Jesus uh, is the beginning, um, the firstborn from the dead, also implies for us that Christ's resurrection, though currently unique to Christ, will be acted out by a greater company in the future. Um, I think those two points together give us great hope that, uh, that Christ has overcome our original enemies, sin and death, and that we get to overcome them with him in the future, that we will be resurrected. And what better hope could be found than that of a world and universe placed back into right relationship with its creator? We see the effects of sin all around us. There's broken families, broken friendships, broken marriages, fights, bitterness, gossip, war and violence, death. The list goes on and on. But what could be better than to know that all of this will be set right, all will be reconciled, And just as we see Paul point out, this reconciliation is being achieved through the same agent as through which everything was created, through Jesus. There's great harmony in God's plan from creation through the incarnation and into the reconciliation of all things. And that is that Jesus is the supreme, sufficient agent to complete these glorious works with God the Father. Um, And while the new creation has, uh, has invaded this present creation through Jesus, while uh, yeah, we still look forward to the further resurrection of the dead and the full reconciliation of all things, uh, we're seeing here that Paul's belief that God brought forth the inauguration of the age to come, the age of resurrection, this new creation, into the midst of the present age so that the power of the new age might be unleashed on the world while there's still time for the world to be saved. Uh, and what is that power? of the new age. We see here in verse 20, it is peace made by the blood of his cross. Through the work of Christ on the cross, God has brought his entire rebellious creation back under the rule of his sovereign power. And of course, as we experience, this peace isn't fully established. We still see brokenness. We still see fights. We still see violence. But that peace is secured in principle by Christ's crucifixion. And it's available in preliminary form for believers, for those who are in Christ, for those who put their trust in him and surrender their lives to him. Uh, and this phrase in verse 20, uh, where we see that God is reconciling all things, I think maybe a better expression there, one that I like is, um, is to say this is the reconciliation of the totality of all things. It is an unimaginable scope. It's everything that has ever been, that will ever will be. Um, It's this giant, incomparable, 
cosmic reconciliation, um, which matches the amount of brokenness that humanity has led into creation through our sin and rebellion. Um, and then also another point I, I wanted to, to call out in verse 19, um, we see that God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, right? Uh, the incarnation wasn't just a last resort. Uh, our rebellion, my rebellion, didn't surprise God. It didn't confuse God. Uh, it didn't force him into an action that he didn't want to take. Um, see, by taking human form, he fulfills his purpose of creating humanity to reign and rule with him in the midst of creation. He created a world of women and men into which he could enter, which necessarily entailed the possibility that these women and men could rebel against him. Our rebellion, like I said, didn't surprise him. What it did is it made it possible to glorify the quality which God carries above all others, love, and specifically, his love expressed through the cross, his sacrifice uh, for us on our behalf to make us right with him. So now that we've looked at this beautiful poem, uh, which has expressed many truths about Jesus for us, particularly through the themes of creation, the supremacy of Christ, new creation and reconciliation, let's look at how Paul applies these truths to us. Um, and while Paul is speaking directly to the Colossians, obviously in this letter, uh, what he's saying is true of, of everyone, particularly those who are in Christ um, and, and will be true of those who uh, will, be, will be in Christ. These verses show us the promised hope. And I'll read them again for us, 21 through 23. They say, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so we see verse 22 connects us right back to verse 19, this, this idea of reconciliation. But in 19, where we saw this reconciliation on a cosmic scale, this unimaginable scope, uh, verse 22 brings it much closer. It makes it very intimate. And we see that, uh, that we're reconciled in his body. Uh, that's me and you. It's very close to us. And while we can and should hope for the eventual reconciliation of all things, uh, which is, as we've seen, already secured but not yet established, we can and should also hope for our individual reconciliation to God. And we see um, in Christ's bodily death, we can find our own reconciliation, not one, not only already secured, but also available to be established immediately. Paul doesn't say here that God's action in Christ immediately makes us perfect. Um, it doesn't instantly change us into, uh, into this perfect uh, being who no longer sins. Uh, instead, as we see in the verses, having been given a new life, we must behave in accordance with it which is only made possible through that same reconciliation. And these verses show us that God's purpose is to create a holy people in Christ. And this he has done in principle uh, by dealing with sin on the cross and thus already achieving reconciliation. And he's doing this in practice by refashioning our lives according to the pattern of the one 
perfect life, that of Jesus. Uh, Paul also hits on this point in Colossians 3, 9, and 10. Later in this letter, it says, uh, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, uh, in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so we also see this work of reconciliation he'll do uh, in the future when that work is complete and the church enjoys fully that which at present it awaits in hope. It's this present process which begins with patient Christian living and ends with the resurrection itself will result in Christians being presented without shame or fear before God as glad subjects before their king. And in verse 23, though, we see that this promise, that of being presented uh, holy and blameless and above reproach, like many other promises in Scripture, is conditional. Uh, we must hold to the faith, uh, which leads us kind of to our landing place this morning, our response to the hope that we find here. Um, there's no sphere of existence over which God is not sovereign, um, over which Jesus is not supreme. By virtue of both his role in creation, as we see in verses 16 and 17 in the poem, but also in his role in reconciliation, as we see in verses 18 through 20. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Therefore, our response to hope, bringing peace and sharing about the power and hope of the incarnation can be well understood as the proclamation that Jesus is already Lord, that in him God's new creation has broken into history, and that all people are therefore summoned to submit to him in love, worship, and obedience. And the logic of this message of, of announcing that power and that hope is that those who come to announce that Christians should be seeking to bring Christ's lordship to bear on every area of humanity and worldly existence. Uh, Christians should be working to help create conditions in which human beings and the whole created order can live as God always intended. Um, yeah, there are a whole range of ethical norms that God established, and I think that we, uh, even outside of, of Christianity and the church, uh, that, that the world see as good, um, including respect for people and property, uh, maintenance of family life, and even the, the ecological order of creation, um, and justice between individual groups. Um, I have a friend at work who... Uh, distinctly lives in a lot of these sort of ethical standards. Um, he's a vegan. He cares deeply about um, the food industry and its effect on animal life and uh, the future effect that that will have on our planet. Um, he is an example in our office of respect for both people and for property. Um, and he regularly shares stories about um, how difficult it is to maintain a healthy relationship with his girlfriend and his family in the chaos of, of everyday life. Um, he's also the founder of a running group whose mission it is to engage the Los Angeles community in exciting athletic events that foster movement, local discovery, culture awareness, and civic pride. Um, 
but my friend isn't a Christian. He hasn't been reconciled to God through Christ. He lives out these ethical standards because he hopes that they will provide meaning in his own life and in the lives of his friends and family. He hopes that they'll bring some peace to his own life and to the lives of those close to him and even to larger parts of our world. He puts the responsibility on himself to bring peace and hope not only to his own life but even to the lives of the people he knows. And that's a big burden to bear. See, Christians should be in the forefront of those walking to promote such causes. Uh, Many opportunities to talk vividly about Jesus will occur in the undertaking of this work as it becomes clear that the gospel provides a coherent and satisfying underpinning for those standards, the standards which uphold a truly human life. See, my friend has witnessed this through glimpses of my life. Um, He sees how I respect other people too and and property, and he hears stories uh, about how I try to maintain healthy family life, a healthy relationship with Macy, uh, healthy relationships with our roommates, Josh and Madison, um, the difficulties there. He sees um, the decisions that I've made to to reduce my carbon footprint, because that's, I think, important. Um, And yeah, the, the difference is I make a lot of these decisions, I take a lot of these actions, not uh, out of a, a hope that they'll change people because I'm doing them, but I have hope in the things already accomplished on my account and also in the ultimate reconciliation and peace that is to come. And I get to share with him why this great hope can be his as well. I get to explain uh, that these good things I'm able to do are actually really being done by God through this hope and through his power within me. I get to bring the power of the new creation into his life um, with the hope that he will experience this reconciliation for himself. Now we know Paul in these last few verses is speaking very directly to the Colossians, who we find out in the rest of the letter are entertaining false teachers who could shift them from their hope in the gospel. This condition still holds true for us today as we've seen we put our hope uh, elsewhere. Um, We put our hope in in our family ties um, and how we maintain our children's lives. Uh, We put our hope in in resting. Um, As I mentioned, I put my hope in my job and my, uh, in this, season of of looking towards a new role and and a smooth transition. Um, But the wonderful truth that we see in Colossians 1 is that the incarnation has given us access to a much better hope, a promise that we can be set right with God, and that ultimate peace for the totality of all things is not only something we can look forward to, but for those of us who are in Christ, having become new creations after our own reconciliation, and even for those who aren't yet, who haven't taken that step, that we get to take part in bringing that ultimate peace on earth in Christ. For me, that means I can rest in the knowledge that my job doesn't provide my joy, doesn't provide me peace. Um, Instead, I can look at my job, whichever one I have in two months, um, as an avenue for sharing the hope and peace I've found through Jesus. 
For each of us, this hope means we can look to God's Spirit to guide us in bringing this new creation power, this reconciliation and peace into the world around us. One great way he will do this is through these ethics he's established. And as we've seen, uh, and we'll continue to see as we get back into our series about Mark, uh, these ethics were consistent with how Jesus lived his life. So we can live in the example of Jesus and share about the power and hope that we have. We've seen today the real beauty of the incarnation, the real beauty of Jesus being born outside, God dwelling in human form, and that is that God took pleasure in doing so. He took pleasure in creating a world in which his incarnation and crucifixion were a possibility by giving men and women free will to either live in harmony with him as delegated rulers in creation, or to rebel against him and try to fashion the world through our own will, to rule without him in his place. He took pleasure in exemplifying the new creation for us, showing us the ethics and actions which are valued in his kingdom, which is now broken into history uh, and is being brought to bear in the world and we get to take part in. He took pleasure in walking to his death in order to reconcile all things and all people to himself. He took pleasure in raising Jesus from the dead, bringing the new creation into the midst of the old creation, offering a new hope for humanity. And he takes pleasure presently in accepting new children into his family, seeing people put their faith and trust in him and looking to the hope that he provides. He takes pleasure in his church, loving, worshiping, and obeying him. He takes pleasure in his church behaving as though the new heaven and new earth are already here. Like we said, respecting people and property, maintaining family life in the ecological order, and seeking justice between people and groups. And I think there's great reason for us to take pleasure in these things too. So let's take this hope with us through the Christmas season, not the hopes that we brought with us, not hoping for new jobs, hoping for our families to be good, hoping for uh, rest, to provide sustenance for us. Instead, let's hope for reconciliation. Let's hope for peace. I'll pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for this beautiful truth that we see that, um, that you took pleasure in coming to earth in human form, dwelling among us, exemplifying uh, the life of a new creation and, and what it means to, to live in reconciliation and right relationship with you. God, I pray that we would take this truth and take it with us into our lives um, and into our workplaces and into our families in this holiday season. God, we love you and we pray all this in your name.